Schizo Niebuhr, coming up on Love Thy Niebuhr. You're listening to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of your boy, Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined, as always, by my trusty counterpart. Made you sound like a horse right there. Sorry. Um, Anyway, welcome to a special Advent episode uh, where we present to you, our dear listener, a very special Christmas gift straight from the heart, all wrapped in swaddling cloths, Dr. Charles Matthews. Maximum Niebuhr. Dr. Matthews is the Barbour Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia and Senior Fellow at UVA's Miller Center of Public Affairs. He specializes in Augustine, uh, having written um, the highly praised work Evil and the Augustinian Tradition, among many other works on ethics, public life, and comparative religion. Not to mention wading in to those Niebuhrian waters, uh, particularly the papers we'll be discussing today. It's actually more of a, a cannonball into the Niebuhrian waters, uh, but we'll get that to that in a moment. Dr. Matthews, it's a pleasure. Welcome. Thank you. And I, I appreciate the uh, the intro, which made this sound a little bit more like, um, uh, you know, Ali G as a podcast, which was, <laughs> which was pretty cool. I thought that was nice. I take that as a compliment. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're going to call this Reinhold, Reinhold Niebuhr now or something like that. <laughs> well, for our listeners, Zach and I have uh, read a couple of uh, Dr. Matthews' papers and uh, Chuck's papers. He goes by Chuck. And while I hope to get into the paper on virtue ethics because it's the more recent uh, work of the two, the main focus will be on a paper he published in 1999, uh, so not long before uh, the Niebuhr revival. Uh, and it's called Reading Reinhold Niebuhr Against Himself. And I'll, and I'll explain why I wanted to discuss this paper in particular here in a moment. But um, Zach and I have prepared questions. Zach will get us started and then uh, and then I'll go and around we'll go for about an hour and then we'll wrap. So uh, take it away, Zach. So we always like to start things with a very personal question. It's a very intimate question we want to ask you. And that is, um, why Niebuhr? Where did this journey begin for you? Uh, uh, I grew up in the academically in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, deeply influenced by uh, Stanley Hauerwas, actually, and very, very inspired by that, but also inspired by other uh, thinkers. And um, of course, Hauerwas was in some ways Niebuhr's nephew uh, uh, because he had been sort of inspired himself by H. Richard Niebuhr, Niebuhr's brother, mm. <clears throat> the, the Mycroft Holmes to the Reinhold Sherlock Holmes. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, so when I did the paper at the SCE, um, it was an a, attempt to recover a more theological Niebuhr um, in a time when he had been mostly understood before as a kind of social ethicist. Hmm. Uh, that's why I framed that paper in that way with the kind of the theological, the big theological guns up front. So Milbank, Kathy Tanner, others, and then Above all, H. Richard, actually, as a, these voices I was trying to put Niebuhr in conversation with. And um, he ha- and and Lovin has a very Augustinian Niebuhr. Um, so did you um, 
run into him at university when you were at University of Chicago or what's what is yeah, that the great there? The great irony is that um, I went to Chicago thinking I would be studying with Robin. Um, and the summer before I got there, he left to go to be dean at Drew. Um, great. Which was on one level a tragedy because I never got to be his explicit student in classes. But in another way, um, it opened up new opportunities for me. I ended up getting getting a quite an education there with with Bill Schweiker and Kathy Tanner and and Robin's eventual replacement, who was Gene Elstein, uh, another enormous influence on me and a, and a a thinker of blessed memory now as well. Um, but the funny thing is, Robin has basically read every book I've ever published and often been um, a report a reviewer for publish for presses uh, for my stuff. So. And I continue to think of him as one of my great, um, one of my great mentors and uh, an admirable human in all respects. So, Absolutely, we just had him on. Um, I was just saying how fitting he was just on. Yeah. Our, and I know this yeah. is merely an audible right. podcast, but I, I hope at one point you're able to send some pictures to people of of Robin's ties because they're always the best ties. Oh, he has the most amazing ties that he wears to conferences. So, does he have like? like figures on them or they're just really Often. nice looking. They're just beautiful, bright, brilliant. I mean, you know, uh, men don't have much in the way of sartorial distinction, but the tie is really where <laughs> it goes. And Robin is fantastic at that. So, um, but how did I get into Niebuhr? Well, there is the, the very long story. And then there's the medium story. The very long story is that I, I actually grew up the um, much beloved son of, uh, a, a father who had been in some ways pretty damaged by the Korean War um, and had thought before he went to the war, he had been um, thinking maybe, uh, he'd been a very serious young Catholic actually, and been thinking maybe about possibly becoming a Jesuit um, and lost his faith in the war and um, kind of sent him along a path, a careening path, which uh, was luckily caught by my mother eventually, and uh, and they had a good, happy life together. And they, you know, among other things, they produced me and my sister. But it was always interesting growing up around someone who had been damaged by history in some serious ways, and in a way that you know he was able to endure. But um, it was always it was always there as a backstory for him. And um, the, then we lived overseas. My dad was an engineer, a civil engineer, and in some level, a deep believer in the kind of technocratic reason of the uh, post-World War II American century, the idea that we could build our way into a happier future, uh, which, you know, is in some ways a, a target of a lot of Niebuhr's thinking. And I think uh, my dad as well grew to doubt the, in some real ways, the, the wisdom of that strategy of living. Um, and so uh, in a way, before I had read Niebuhr, I felt like I had experienced some of the misgivings mm. Niebuhr oh. formulated in his own stuff. And I'm I, I'm sorry for if I'm speaking yeah. out of turn here, but your dad worked in the oil industry, did he not? Yeah, he did. That's right. He was a, well. He was a civil engineer, and uh, worked building things in the United States first, and then in the mid '70s, uh, well, he went to we went to Alaska, uh, which was uh, where we worked for Alieska, which was the oil company there, and then we went to Saudi Arabia at the end of the Alaska pipeline projects. Hmm. Uh, Aramco, the Saudi company, came over and basically hoovered everybody up and sent them to Saudi Arabia, which wow. was, you know, kind of a meteorological whiplash. Um, but what was amazing was the cultural continuities between 
the kind of petroleum archipelago of people around the world. Uh, I had friends from Canada and Scotland, the North Sea, Nigeria, Indonesia, all the places where there was oil in the 70s and 80s, Texas, California. Um, and the funny thing is the kind of weird petrocosmopolitanism of that, uh, which was um, marked by the fact that in my second grade class in Valdez, Alaska, I had a, a young lady named Teresa Dayton who ended up in my fifth grade class in Udalia, Saudi Arabia, mm. <laughs> herself, half Texan, half Indonesian. Um, oh. And we're still now Facebook friends on, uh, and she lives in Scotland, I think, with her family. <laughs> That's great. So, it was a weird, it was in some ways a weird childhood, a very cosmopolitan childhood, in other ways, a very parochial childhood. Um, you know, uh, it's that that old great line from the Blues Brothers about what kind of music you got here. Well, we got both kinds. We got country and Western. <laughs> um it, it felt to me simultaneously like I knew a lot about the world, um, but I knew a lot about the world from one little slice of it. Mm. Uh, that was one thing. Kind of an American was, island in a in you know a foreign land. Well, it was American in some ways. Um oh, cosmopolitan, but was, yeah. It, but it was weirdly but it no, it was it was it was as parochial as any American island could be, <laughs> but it was also weirdly more um many more countries um of people whose worldviews were broadly kind of committed to the idea that problems could be solved mm. uh and there were there were not so much mysteries as technical challenges um and, and you know and i i actually i don't mean to disparage that i think that vision uh was uh incredibly powerful and in many ways wonderful mm -hmm. um and you know there's that great line at the end of, or at the very beginning, actually, of Apollo 13, where uh, Jim Lovell and his wife are laying in their backyard looking up at the moon after the uh, Apollo 11 moon landing. And he says, you know, men are on the moon. And it isn't uh, it isn't a miracle. We just decided to go. Mm. And, and that mindset is, I think, something that um, it's easy for us now to dunk on it. But it's also it's an interesting mindset. And it's it's worth respecting its energies, mm -hmm. even as we want to maybe note in Niburian ways, I think it's it's limitations. But anyway, that was my basic deep cultural background. Uh, when and I that was, kind of primed you for for Niebuhr, I guess, yeah, to, to yeah, pick yeah. up and to critique yourself. And yeah. Yeah. And when I was 12, we were on vacation. We went on vacations a lot in those days around the world because in Saudi it was easy. And my dad took me to Dachau. And I had thought about like World War II and stuff before, but I had never really come to terms with the idea of uh, an industrial site dedicated entirely to the annihilation of humans. And Dachau wasn't the worst of the concentration camps by any means. And it wasn't actually Auschwitz. It wasn't a pure factory of death, but it had that component in it. And um, it really set me on a kind of, it, it, it set up a little, um, a, like as it were, a kind of a black pearl in my soul mm. that I think still stays with me about thinking about evil. And so that was it. And then I went to, you know, I went, I, I thought about kind of politics and philosophy stuff a lot in high school and college and was kind of knocked off my socks, actually, in college by a theology professor at Georgetown who really mm -hmm. affected me. And um, Professor Yeager, she was a, a scholar of H. Richard Niebuhr. Um, mm -hmm. And in her classes, we would always read H. Richard. Um, she wasn't against Reinhold, but she just, you know, wasn't as interested in his questions. And then when I went to grad school, uh, I really discovered not just H. Richard, but the larger community of thinkers 
out of which Reinhold had come. Yeah. And um, a few people there and Professor Yeager back at Georgetown had pointed me towards Augustine as one of his big sources. And uh, from there, it just kind of went on. Interesting. So you started with more contemporary 20th century people and worked backwards to Augustine. Yeah, I did. And I've continued to work backwards. Um, it, it feels to me like that's a good way to do things, that you you can think historically, but you also need to think about the contemporary world inevitably. And mm -hmm. uh, it's a good it's a good way. It's a good way to organize your energy and to always try to remind yourself about uh, what's at stake. Gene, uh, when Professor Elstein would be giving classes and stuff in the 90s, and we'd be reading the stuff from like Camus or uh, the Eastern European intellectuals or 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 Niebuhr or JP2 or whatever, she was always very good at attending to the ways that the questions they were asking might have been asked in their time, but uh, they were questions that would come back again. And mm. uh, one of her favorite, not favorite, but one of my favorite lines from her, it, it stuck with me uh, about the 90s, which was a complicated time for those of us who were there <laughs> in terms of feeling like there was a lot of potential for the U.S. to do good in the world and that the world was maybe moving in some right. good directions, uh, but that we were also failing to confront some of our deepest challenges. She said at one point in a, I think in the 95 or maybe 95, 96, during, during the kind of after the early Yugoslav wars had kind of kind of come to a stymie and we were thinking about what to do. She said, um, we're not going to get these years back. Um, mm. You know, there's more history still to come. Mm. And if we don't understand that we have to prepare ourselves for it and do what we can in these good years, you know, this is kind of like Joseph with the seven fat years. Um, mm. If you don't do it now, we're going to look back on this and feel real regret mm. Uh, mm. about this. And it, 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 you know, she and I, I mean, we, we, we have disagreements. We had disagreements about stuff all the time, but, but I always thought that that experience of knowing these challenges would come back. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's stuck with me. Uh, and especially these last, you know, the last 10 years or so um, we had a plague. Camus wrote a novel called the plague. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. We deal with a kind of what, what some of us see as a kind of creeping authoritarianism mm -hmm. in our country. We see people we know and love uh, people we respect signing Some off of that authoritarianism um, i think we're all with you on that one yeah, yeah. what's amazing about it is the uh this this vibe that you get that we're in some ways a little bit back in the 30s um yeah and so the early neighbor is in that way a, a real interesting inspiration in that sense there's even yeah. flavors of cold war popping back up and uh, oh yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. David Brooks says that uh, when he the first time he encountered Niebuhr was on a plane ride to the the fall of the Berlin Wall that he was covering, and uh, and he had read Irony of American History. Just happened to be reading it at that moment, and I think and in, in that moment he describes similar to your pit that you got in your stomach. Of gosh, everybody's really happy about this, but for some reason I I don't feel great. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that um, that recurrent. His, history and that's an uh, augustinian idea in itself of of things coming back around that actually these things never really leave us in a way um they just kind of morph into into new ways that we weren't totally expecting or we can't see in that exact moment i guess and that's kind of what makes neighbor uh you know a great guy neighbor and augustine great guys to 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 read because you can always kind of pick up good critiques they got now for my um my first question to you, uh, 
the reason I wanted to read this paper in particular and go, going off the title, title is it reading uh, Reinhold Niebuhr against himself? Look, I'll admit we here on the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast risk being a bit hagiographic at times uh, when it comes to the greatest theologian who ever lived. Um, <laughs> Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, so it can be challenging to turn a critical eye on the guy. Um, you begin with a very Niburian mic drop, uh, ironically. You, you say, um, uh, and I quote, uh, a tradition is an ongoing act of forgiveness. Great way of getting into the subject matter, by the way. But then you say, Niebuhr seems to need much forgiving. <laughs> so for my first question, uh, without getting far it, too far into the paper, put put us in our place a little bit here on the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Be the neighbor to our neighbor. Uh, give, <laughs> give us uh, one glaring flaw of this man. First one that comes to mind. That's great. I'll give you two. Um, the first <laughs> right. one that I grew up with in some ways uh, that Stanley Hauerwas actually was really good about pointing out, but other people too, including his brother, H. Richard, uh, and then H. Richard, one of H. Richard's big students, Jim Gustafson, also pointed this out. Neighbor sometimes thought about um, Christian thought as a philosophy that was in some ways detachable from uh, the formation of people in an ecclesial life. Uh, I'm not saying that's entirely fair, but you know, when Hauerwas says the first task of the church is to be the church, he is in some ways subtly critiquing Niebuhr, who was in some ways too quickly framing Christianity as a resource for a moral community that effectively identified itself with the nation. Um, and so that's one worry there that I think is interesting. How can Niebuhr be um, of use in uh, for Christian theology in a time when the establishment and when Christendom, as Sauerwas would put it, or the mainline, uh, as maybe sociologists would put it, when that's gone away? In other words, how can Niebuhr be a viable theological resource in a context of genuine uh, pluralism? in that way. The more recent one is the one that I've seen more recently with thinkers like contemporary thinkers like Sam Moyne, who's an historian at Yale, uh, and he's critiqued Niebuhr as one of the Cold War liberals. And so this is the new kind of version of this in some ways is if if someone like Hauerwas is critiquing Niebuhr from a kind of more ecclesial vision, uh, people like Moyne are critiquing Niebuhr uh, as insufficiently um, providing us with the political capital to transform our society in the way that we want to, because he's in mm. some ways too conservative. Uh, so, you know, if Hauerwas is Niebuhr's too national, uh, people like Moyne are like Niebuhr's too uh, conservative in the old sense of conservative, not reactionary, but just trying to make us go slower, keep on to keep holding on to old patterns, old structures, old institutions and stuff. Um, and that because of that, someone like Niebuhr failed to unleash the revolutionary potential uh, that was available in modern society. I actually think that in some ways, both of these criticisms are fair um, in the sense that Niebuhr does not often talk about the church. I think he he actually lived the church more than many of the people who um, who are in uh, the position of complaining about that. I mean, I, I, I know Stanley and I, I totally admire Stanley. Uh, he's always been a college professor. Uh, Reinhold was a minister for 10 years and actively involved in ways he was in a different era but um, actively involved in ways in the ecclesial life of the community. 
it's just so interesting that he took that for granted in ways that I think Harawas is right, don't actually appear as much in structurally in the infrastructure of his thought. I also agree with someone like Moyne that um, there is a real conservative wariness uh, about Niebuhr in terms of revolution. He started off much more revolutionary, but then uh, he, uh, maybe like some of the others of us, um, got a little more wary of revolutionary claims when he saw what happened. Um, and again, my worry about nation reading, Jap Jacobin writing people like Moyne, safely ensconced at Yale Law School, um, is that it's not clear to me that, you know, he's ever really thought through what a revolution would entail. Um, and so I, I, I you know, I, I, I think there's some plausibility to Niebuhr's wariness there, but from my conservative, heavily tenured, heavily, uh, you know, uh, landed gentry vision here in central Virginia, um, I'm actually somewhat more comfortable with, with Niebuhr's wariness of radical transformation. So would it be fair to say to kind of combine the two uh, critiques then, one would say Niebuhr isn't um, post-liberal enough, and the other one is saying Niebuhr isn't liberal enough? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, they're both complaining about Niebuhr's liberalism in different ways. Um, so you could actually just reduce it so that he's not post-liberal enough as long as you construe post-liberal in the two different ways. Uh, you know, Moyne in the post, the people today critique liberalism in a different way than Howarth did. Um, but they're both kind of complaining about the same thing in some ways. Interesting. Um, different dimensions of the same thing. But yeah, and I actually think that the more I the, the more I appreciate what Niebuhr, the more I understand what Niebuhr is doing, and maybe the the more I understand the challenges that I feel are structurally similar between our moment and his, um, the more appreciative of that liberalism I become. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, my my next question uh, it comes from kind of that the the first section, that section that reads uh, realism is pessimism, epistem epistemology and sin. And I, I got to read a little bit and I want to do something a little funny here because <clears throat> um, I, I thought a cliff when I was reading this, this criticism that you offered uh, yeah. Eber, um just in some of our discussion. Um, Are you about to criticize me, Zach? No, I, I'm, I'm about to say that I, I see. You. I see you. <laughs> <laughs> OK, no. So he, here it is. It's just a short part of the paragraph. He said. Niebuhr's account not only explains sin too well. It also makes faith and hope seem absurd, miraculous, and contrary to all available evidence. Niebuhr's work depicts the human as inevitably sinful and the human world as inevitably conflictual, a veil of tears that we can never escape. The fact that sin seems reasonable and hope and faith unreasonable are Niebuhr's critics merely, uh, are for Niebuhr's critics merely symptomatic of his deep metaphysical pessimism. The problem is not that this metaphysics is explanatory asymmetrical, explanatorily asymmetrical, but that the asymmetry is the wrong way around. Niebuhr is the Manichae's asymmetry, which pictures our world as a world of corpses, a world which God is not just epistemically hidden, but actually absent. Do you think like that's that's kind of a criticism, I guess, that we often get of Niebuhr just in, ter in terms of things when we've discussed this with people who um, kind of are opposed to Niebuhr is that God is basically absent from his ideas. And Cliff's even said that sometimes, you know, he's like, man, sometimes I'm, I'm an agnostic about whether God is acting in history. 
But do you think that that's, uh, you know, now that we're 23, 24 years on from the article, do you think, do you still think that? I think that there are ways in which the, the point of the article, as I recall it, is to identify different dimensions of Niebuhr's thought, which are in some ways in conflict with each other. And I would still say that his basic account of how humans know things in uh, this world and what they can know. Um, my vision of Niebuhr's basic philosophical epistemology in that way uh, hasn't changed that much. Um, where I tried to go on the other side and be more optimistic about Niebuhr um, is to say that he also insists on the necessity of hope. Um, and as you know, as I, I think I say in that article, right, the curious fact that the very last word of the nature and destiny of man is hope, yeah. um, which uh, other thinkers have picked up on as well. I think it's precisely because he goes so deep into the abyss and he does so structurally with his own kind of the, the philosophical equipment he brings to it. He kind of brings you into the abyss there. Um, that that serves as a powerful counterpoint to the insistence on hope. And I think actually he was always very wary of articulating the philosophical and theological grounds of that hope um, in a way. He was worried that he was in too optimistic a, an era. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm no historian, but there were there are lots of historians who would say that there was a kind of um, a glibness to uh, American thinking in the in the 40s and 50s that was only occasionally punctuated by a kind of pessimism. And so in that sense, he might have felt like rhetorically he needed to lean on the pessimism in that way. Mm. I would I would also say um, that vision of the necessity of sin, right? Um, or as he put it, the inevitability, yet not necessity in yeah. uh, is is in fact, again, counterpointed by other dimensions of his thought, which he doesn't develop as fully. That's what I was trying to point out in the, okay. in the paper. And the dimensions, I would say, of that kind of insistence on hope, uh, which is pretty early for him, actually. I think his wonderful, uh, his wonderfully conceived, though too impressionistic little book, Beyond Tragedy, is good on this. Um, but also for me, I actually think the irony of American history um, is a really important book for this. Not so much for the story of American history he tells, but at the beginning of that book, he actually says, we have two basic visions of how the world hangs together, right? We have comedy and tragedy. And I actually want to say, I, Reinhold Niebuhr, actually want to say that irony might be a more important uh, Christian category. Hmm. And I think we haven't really picked up on that, but I think that's actually quite deep. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century, even until after World War II, one of the big arguments was that Christians couldn't write tragedy because tragedy was impossible for Christians because of their metaphysical commitments. I take it that Niebuhr is at least implicitly glancing at that by saying mm -hmm. that um, the idea of a providential God who governs the world is a way of generating a vision that's ironic which is kind of beyond comedy and tragedy. Beyond um, tragedy. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's where he would go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That, is that answering your question? Yeah, I I believe it is. I was just curious, maybe Cliff. Uh, well, I have more to go off of this because what you, you do present. I had this thought when we were about to, but never fully did, uh, interview John Milbank because he had a similar critique, almost like Niebuhr has this flattened um, epistemology, this flattened anthropology, or no, Flattened epistemology. Uh, and um, 
I almost wonder, like when I was reading Milbank, I almost thought, is he just reading, is he just critiquing everything Niebuhr wrote before Nature and Destiny? I thought that maybe that was the case because he does get very, um, he adds a whole lot of dimension to his epistemology once he gets there. And granted, you know, before Niebuhr more methodically laid out his anthropology in, in Nature and Destiny, it, it can be difficult to see what what he's tracing from what, how he's building what. Uh, but he does have a certain notion of incarnation um, where the word is made flesh. <clears throat> Our ideals are, albeit relativized, but they are uh, concretely uh, realized in history to some extent. Um, it's not as starkly cut between uh, what you bring up, what's possible and what's impossible, like we, we see in the impossible possibility phrasing. But he, he does have an incarnational element to how he understands truth and how the rubber meets the road a little bit. Uh, does that do anything uh, for, for, for you, Chuck? Uh, was this, do you think that this is maybe a later development, this incarnational talk, or, or was it here all along in Niebuhr's brain? Yeah, I think, no, and remember, I am, I, I love John. John is, you know, an old friend of mine. We were colleagues at UVA for like five years. John, I'm down with John. John's a great guy, brilliant theologian. I think here, he and I would really differ. Um, I think especially that was the early young John when he writes the stuff about Niebuhr. And he's he's really kind of writing him to write, write him off. Um, and that's not what I'm trying to do at all. I'm trying to identify different dimensions of Niebuhr's thought and say that they are in some complicated ways in tension with each other. Um, and another, at one point, I think that paper might've been entitled something like Christology and Sin in the thought of Niebuhr. And the reason was that I do actually think that Christology and Sin stand in some tension in his thought, in his, what I would call, maybe with you, Cliff, his mature thought. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and I think that's, a, that's, that's, first of all, an exegetical claim about Niebuhr that I think a lot of people read Niebuhr um, only in terms of moral man and a moral society and a very kind of pessimistic kind of, and actually a, a, a philosophically and theologically shallow uh, Niebuhr. And that's mm -hmm. not what he was doing later. The, the depths mm -hmm. were always there, but he just didn't deploy them in those early things. Um, yes, I would say there's totally um, other dynamics and other energies that move towards a positivity uh, in Niebuhr and a um, an actual uh, an attachment to a realism in Niebuhr. And I think Levin is maybe the best place to go to see some of that laid out uh, in the uh, in the Christian Realisms book. But I would also say that even in his epistemology there, just in what you were talking about, look how it begins in NDM, right? The very first sentence is like something like, what is it? Man has always been his own most vexing problem. Oh, yeah. And so it, what it does is it sets up the epistemology as the problem of self-knowledge, which is actually not to go too deep into things here, but it's a very Kantian approach, mm -hmm. right? That, what you're dealing with is the problem of making sense of your own life. You know, and if you look at like, you know, someone like Bart there drinking his beer and smoking his pipe on a mountain in Switzerland, he's going to be like, but wait, where's God, right? If, if God gets imported as a solution to man's self-knowledge um, for Bart, that is like, you know, saying man in a loud voice. Um, Bart actually, I think, has a good point here that you 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 need to see that part of the narcissism of modern epistemology is its kind of morbid reflexivity um, and that the world actually is yelling at us all the time uh, in ways that I don't think we've, uh, we've really factored in theologically. If I, if one of the books that I may, that I, that I may never write, uh, but I've always wanted to write 
is a book called The Logic of the Obvious. Um, and it's it's really about this, like the language I use there about asymmetries, the metaphysical asymmetry. Someone, I think it was, might've been Wittgenstein said, the world of the happy man is fundamentally different from the world of the of the despairing man. Um, and, you know, I, I read Augustine. And so in the confessions, the question of before and after is really interesting here. There are all sorts of things that once we see them, they're incredibly obvious to us. I hmm. mean, um, yet up to the moment when we recognize them, we don't see them at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the the great moment for me in this, in in um, actually in the Gospels, is the parable of the prodigal. Um, when the prodigal is feeding food to the pigs and envying the pigs food, there's this moment where in the in the text it says, um, and he came to himself. Mm-hmm. And the the verb there is elton. It's a it's a Greek verb that that actually is in what's called the middle voice, which is simultaneously, um, which means it's neither active nor passive. It's something both sides do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the moment of realization. This kind of recognition that is um, both something you do, but is something that's done to you. Mm-hmm. And that that recognition of the obvious, the epistemology of the obvious, which is so not obvious when we first you know, for a long time for us. And then finally, we do see it as obvious. That I think is really interesting. And it applies in this case, because I feel like a lot of Niebuhr's epistemology actually makes it hard to see how the obvious, like the epistemology is in some ways too Pelagian. It's it's too works righteousness. It's all about working out your own solution, which ends up needing you to postulate God. And that's my, maybe that's my, uh, my, overly post-liberal anxiety uh, about Niebuhr's epistemology, uh, that, that, that it still stays too much in the struggling subjectivity of the, of the agent and doesn't, you know, as it were in all of our, in all of our Bible in all of our youth Bible groups, right. It never, it never lets go and lets God. But where else do we start but self? I mean, you can't just begin with revelation, right? I mean, you, or can't I like, think I think he's even channeling Augustine here of the it's it's kind of an understanding how we can't know ourselves that that makes us realize that we need an external resource. We need something to fill in who we are and what we are and what we're doing here and what this place is. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with all that. I think on this on this level. I would just say that we're never only about ourselves. <laughs> and that's, I think, Niebuhr's, Niebuhr's epistemology in that way. In this dimension, only in this dimension, this is not an overall critique of Niebuhr or anything like that, but in this dimension, his epistemology, like a lot of modern, I would say, post-Kantian epistemologies, which are not really very post-Kantian at all, um, is too claustrophobic. Um, you know, I, I am one of the people who really was inspired by people like Wittgenstein and even Heidegger, you know, uh, whatever he was a Nazi, but still, um, and and the idea that we live in the world, Heidegger's idea of being in the world, uh, we're not just trapped in our own consciousness. We're not we're not all all the time um, anxious emo American teenagers, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Where everything is kind of mediated through our own reflection about what just happened. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the world actually tells us a lot, um, and we have to hear the world. Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying the world is sheer imminence, you know, for an Augustinian like me, the world is signs as well as things. And the signs communicate, you know, is uh, uh, the glory of God. Uh, so there's a there's a way in which the world is roaring at us all the time. 
Uh, and we grow up in a way that trains us to deafen ourselves to that roar. But there, there's such a, we're having, a lot, I don't know. I feel claustrophobic with Wittgenstein. <laughs> the, uh, the idea of how much we are a slave to our language and our, and our communities. Um, yeah. And what I want to find here though, is that dialectic. And I think that it's admirable that, as you say, Niebuhr begins with the vexations of humanity, but he ends with hope that there is, yeah. that there is, I mean, I don't know. You got it. And I, I get the, I get the, he's almost Feuerbachian. I don't know if that's fair, like in how he's constructing his uh, anthropology um, his theology is, is, is anthropology, you know, um, in a lot of ways. And I can see how that can feel that way, but he's all about that collision though. Like if you don't have that collision, you don't have Niebuhr at all. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think he was in this way. I mean, I think that I might mention it in the paper. There's a wonderful essay by H. Richard Niebuhr called Reinhold Niebuhr's conception of history or philosophy of history or something like that. And I think some of those complaints are are there. I mean, these are not these are not complaints that I ginned up myself in this way. The idea is just that um, there's a, a lot of Niebuhr's most powerful theological and ethical and maybe political insights are sometimes um, attached to a, a, a subjectivist epistemology mm -hmm. that maybe overly eggs the pudding in ways that make it hard to connect the vision of uh, the energizing capacities that Niebuhr sees and clearly himself embodied uh, to the the idioms of how the self is found in the world that he offers. That, that's that's what I would say. I think that makes sense. So it's kind of the tenor and the um, yeah, I yeah, I can certainly see that. Um, but it's also again, it's just a, it's it's an attempt at repair. It's not an attempt at critique at condemnation. Yeah. Uh, it's like in this way, I think some of his thoughts might have been more better framed in another way, maybe. Uh, but but I mean, and it's, you know, I was taught, I don't know about you, Cliff, but I was taught you do nature and destiny, but you do it kind of like I was actually given the advice and it wasn't bad advice to read faith and history first, which is a slightly later book of his, which in some ways is more is a more abstract formulation. So I might be um, myself over exegeting NDM in terms of a later philosophical uh, vision of it. Um, but the idea is just like that Niebuhr's, the, the subjectivist epistemology underserves the kinds of insights that he otherwise has that mm -hmm. I think would be the thing I would say. Um, my next question, I'm sorry, Zach, uh, you, you get the next one. Um, oh, good. I, that's well, what I was hoping for when I asked that question. <laughs> you, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so uh, you kind of present two Niebuhr's here. Um, and when you go to separate kind of the wheat from the, the chaff uh, <laughs> in Niebuhr's work, you're you're basically saying um, we can critique his more explicit, proper theology from the position of his own anthropology, which is brilliant. It's great. Um, and that's, you know, uh, an exercise worth doing. Um, and it's maybe how we maintain the Niebuhrian tradition going forward, kind of what you were just alluding to. Uh, but it might sound to a listener like you're saying, what's great about Niebuhr, and especially knowing you're an Augustinian, right? It might sound to a listener like you're saying, 
that what's great about Niebuhr is basically just what's Augustinian about Niebuhr and his corresponding, you know, applications and politics. Uh, is that fair? What what would that perspective get wrong? I'm sure that's more fair than not. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure, at least I'll say, I'm sure there's something to that. Um, anybody who is a Niburian should uh, have as one of their first scholarly, as well as personal reflexes, a kind of uh, self-critical suspicion of what they have, themselves are saying. Uh, and also my conception of what Augustinianism is probably would be um, not fair to what other people would think Augustinian is as well. So I'm I'm in many ways an amateur on all this stuff. But <laughs> yeah, my my uh, my first the first uh, one of the first questions my supervisor asked me a long time ago was uh, was I was coming in expecting to talk about Niebuhr. And her first question is, who's Niebuhr? Which Niebuhr <laughs> are you using? Uh, yeah. are you, you know, Lovin's Niebuhr, you know, whose Niebuhr are you using? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The historical, the historical Niebuhr, as you remarked. Yeah. <laughs> Look down the well and there you'll see yourself. Yeah. Um, totally. I, I think where Niebuhr is different than Augustine, I think in this way is he's much more advanced. Augustine was much more anxious about authority than almost anyone in his day was and he was much more nervous about the fact of human dominium of human uh, dominance and rule uh than almost anybody else it seems to me in in the patristic world and i i think that's a, a fact about him that only a few people have noticed but um the people who've noticed that are right um nonetheless augustine understood our world to be one uh, that was pretty paternalistic and had a lot of um, authority that needed to be exercised. Hmm. And I think one of the great insights that Niebuhr has is that at least in the world we live in, uh, which is a world actually of much greater human power and much greater human self-power, we should be much more wary uh, and and much more immediately skeptical of claims to legitimate authority and claims to knowing better. Okay. Uh than uh, in 1500 years before him in Augustine's day. So there's a big, not just political difference, but also I think epistemological difference as well uh, between uh, Niebuhr and uh, Augustine. And one that I would I would think I would be on the Niburian side on. Well, you, you kind of got us on the rabbit trail here because now I'm wondering who's the Augustine in Augustine? Uh, and uh, if we were to separate the wheat from the chaff there, or is it Paul? Is it, I don't know, Jesus? <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I, I mean, there is a lovely essay by um, Robert Dodaro, who was a very important Augustinian scholar, was for a while the uh, rector of the Augustinianum in Rome, uh, called Augustine's Revision of the Heroic Ideal. And his essay makes the case that it was through Augustine's reading of Paul in dialectical relationship with Augustine's own experience of himself in reality, hmm. uh, that he came to see that human moral progress, moral and spiritual progress, was not a matter of gaining ever more durable, stable, consistent character, but of an ever deepening awareness of how screwed up we are. And that this was actually quite radically in opposition to the normal picture of moral maturity that the ancient Mediterranean world offered. 
hmm. like the yeah. pictures in Homer and Virgil and elsewhere were all about people growing in stability and maturity over time. Uh, and Augustine's vision was precisely the opposite, which, you know, is in part, this is a deeper story, but in part about why the Pelagian controversy gets going. The Pelagians mm-hmm. are still wanting to think about Christians as heroes. And Augustine's idea is actually to think about us as heroes is a big mistake. Mm, that is an uh, excellent insight. It's interesting. Anyway, so that's what I would say. Yeah, there's a lot there, but that's another. Well, then, uh, yeah, I mean, you could really trace it back to, I mean, this is just, uh, what are those little Russian dolls? A Russian doll, I think it's called, <laughs> whatever. Uh, you, you could even Russian go back doll. to the differences between the Assyrian and um, and the Jewish uh, myths, uh, Hebrew myths, you know, of of the 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 fall versus, you know, their their stories of, of mythology and so on. I see nothing. I haven't done a complete study of this. But I see nothing like David weeping for Absalom in Homer or Virgil. Yeah. And I, 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 Gilgamesh has a heroism, but in some ways his grief about Enkidu is, is not necessarily silenced, but he, he moves beyond it in some ways Mm -hmm. in the Epic of Gilgamesh. But with David, with that idea of um, a, a loss that is, that is in some ways not, not recovered from, um, I think that's there. There is something there. There's energies there, there yeah. in the stories in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian Old Testament that that trouble that notion of heroism in some yeah. way. Yeah, I'm I'm preaching on the Book of Judges right now, so yeah. <laughs> the is that? Um, I think that's where every vine and fig tree is. Isn't that right? Um, every man ha- go back to his own vine and fig tree. Like no, it's in Hamilton. Yeah, <laughs> it is that's because it, that's because that's actually um, from what we can tell that was George Washington's favorite biblical verse. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I know there's a passage in Isaiah that talks about how we will construct and live in like our own, like our own. We will not build for another. Oh yeah, we will construct. Yeah, yeah. and also like the, the uh, but, but the it's end. also like give us a king, give us a king, and the judge is like, no, you don't get a king. Mm. Um, and it's because they want to go back and they want to anyway. Yeah. But the, sorry. So, my, my next question, I, yeah. I got to know one of the things that I've, that I love about your writing. I just really appreciate it. And I actually laughed a few times when I was reading this because you nail down Niebuhr in a way that I de- like that I've been reading Niebuhr now for a while, but I just didn't have the language. Right. It was and like, you're thinking language. of me too. Right. You're no. thinking of criticizing me too. No, the, yeah, not too. <laughs> the I whole time. That was one of the other parts I laughed at. Um, no, but you said uh, whether or not uh, whether or not other thinkers offer analogous accounts, Niebuhr's work should appeal to us for what he does with his with this account, for the way he uses it to develop a program of acknowledging responsibility that is a particularly fruitful, as it is Christ, as as it is Christianly rooted. You know, I, I was I was thinking of that and I was thinking, you know, they, they asked me when I went to get ordained recently, they asked me like, because I had written in that I like Niebuhr and I'm in a little more conservative denomination and they're, you know, Niebuhr kind of freaks them out a little bit. I kind of like that. But um, they asked me like, why Niebuhr? And I was just like, he just, he haunts me. I come away thinking, man, I, I need to take responsibility. You know what I mean? I need to like acknowledge, or sorry, I need to acknowledge that I'm responsible. And so I was wondering, wh- when did you come to this discovery? What, what, when did you gain this insight? What was that? What was the process that led to this? I would say a novel that had a big effect on me 
and it's a novel that I recommend to anybody who wants to think about politics, is the old Robert Penn Warren novel, All the King's Men, uh, where he talks about whether or not you can do good without doing bad. Um, and the main character in that, the, the the main object character in that, the person who the, the main character is looking at is the boss, uh, Willie Stark, Stark Will, um, who clearly thinks you can't do anything good without doing a great deal of bad. Um, and he does genuine good, but he does a lot of bad along the way. And the, the main character, Jack Burden, thinks about the nature of power and responsibility a lot. So I, I think about that. I think about war and people who have fought in wars and been in wars. Um, one of my favorite things for my students to do is to show them, you can get this on online anywhere. On June 5th, 1944, Eisenhower wrote a little note to himself, which he gave to his staff uh, that effectively says something like, uh, our landings at the Cherbourg Le Havre area on the coast of France have failed and I have withdrawn the troops. In fact, he write, he marks out, he says, initially he wrote, and the troops have been withdrawn. And then he marks it out. And he says, and I have withdrawn the troops. Oh, wow. um, any failure, uh, uh, the troops, uh, the sailors, uh, airmen, and uh, uh, and ground forces uh, perform magnificently. Any uh, responsibility for this failure is due to me alone. Mm -hmm. um, and he wrote this before the invasion started, and he gave it to his chief of staff. And he said, look, you know, this is for if, if things go south here. And you can see the note. It's visible. We have it in the National Archives and stuff like that. And if you follow later stuff with Eisenhower, if you go and you can see the Walter Cronkite 1964, 20 years after D-Day interview with him on the actually in the graveyard uh, above Omaha Beach. Um, what you see there is someone who understands that he had to do things that would lead to the deaths of many people, um, many civilians, even many children. Uh, and yet he had to do them. Uh, and he doesn't try to hide from that and he doesn't try to deny it. And I, I think that is something that like, it's easy for us to always hide from these things. Um, another example that I, I love of this sort of thing is, um, again, it's around World War II, but uh, Lucien Truscott, who was a general actually eventually leading uh, in uh, the South of France and then the Italian, in the Italian campaign too, he was, um, he was giving the Memorial Day address at the at the cemetery outside Anzio, where he had actually led the troops and saved the. At one point, the Americans were about to be overridden, over overrun, uh, and he was the one who saved them. And he went up on the stand, um, and behind him, so there was all these people watching him. And he, the stand is set up with the microphone and everything, you know, facing the crowd. And there's all these kind of big wigs there and everything. And behind him are row upon row of fresh dug graves. And um, I think it was the war correspondent, Bill Maudlin was there. He was a famous GI war correspondent, someone who you know looked at things from the infantryman's side of things. And Maudlin reports on it and he said, it was the most unbelievable thing. It was the most amazing thing he ever saw. Um, but what Truscott did was he walked up on the podium. He looked at the entire crowd in front of him and then he took the microphone and he turned around and he addressed his memorial speech to the dead. Hmm. Um, and the content of the speech was incredible. I, I, I don't have it offhand, but um, it was very brief. And he said, oh, we're here to remember you this day. 
and I wanted to let you all know that uh, I am so sorry uh, that you are here and not going home. And that um, uh, I, I want to tell you that I did my best to not put you here. Uh, but every commander knows in his heart that that is not entirely true. Um, and that if at some point in the future I run across anybody uh, who thinks that war is a glorious thing um, and good for young men to die in, I will try to straighten them out and that that is the least I could do for you. And then he walked away. And that, when I think about acknowledging responsibility, it's things like that that I think about. And there's a famous, I, I think true, I, I've heard this from a couple people, story of Obama in uh, 2012, as he was preparing for his reelect in the spring of 2012. Uh, and, you know, he had really expanded the drone campaign to kill various people in the in very many places around the world. And he was listing off his strengths and weaknesses as he understood them in the campaign to come up, you know, the, the, the coming campaign. And at the end, he said, oh, and there's one more thing I've learned about myself. I've learned that it's very easy for me to kill people. Hmm. Um, and I, I think about moments like that. I think about those moments of, of knowledge and an acknowledgement of that as, you know, that's what we want our leaders to be able to do. Um. And, you know, you think that's one of the good qualities of Niebuhr then? Yeah, that he actually gives us an account of why that's possible. Now, Niebuhr is not someone, by the way, who just gives, I think sometimes people accuse him of being someone who gives kind of permission for anyone to do anything and then feel bad about it later. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, he wasn't that way. He had a almost immediate reaction to the atomic bombing in Japan, even though he understood more than almost anybody else um, that absent the atomic bombing, you know, millions would have died probably that was i think a common assessment at the time um so it's not like he gave people kind of premature to do anything and then just go have a whiskey and soda uh, and feel bad about themselves yeah. but he also understood that in a situation of enormous responsibility people have to be able to tell the truth about the kind of negativity of this what's going to cost us and not flinch from it that it's better to tell that truth uh and I think that's a that's an important moral trait. And you know, honestly, today, I mean, maybe for all times, that's not something a lot of us are able to do. Now, I, I mean, it obviously begs the question of where is that gone? Um, where now people um, are incapable of uh, what Niebuhr would call repentance. And this this actually goes into um, your paper on virtue ethics because. When I read Niebuhr, I want to turn him into a bottleable product that I can give to people and be like, do what he says here. Um, I want him, I want to be able to condense him down into virtues. Um, and I've always wondered going into, and and we had um, we had uh, David True and Kevin Carnahan on, as we mentioned, uh, who helped edit that Paradoxical Virtue book. Yeah. Um, and uh I've I've also I've often wondered what Niebuhr virtue ethics would look like um, and how it would compare to traditional virtue ethics. And it always seemed like Niebuhr's virtues, uh, if we could call them that, they feel almost upside down, like bizarro world virtues compared to like classical virtues. 
Um, humility and courage, for instance, uh, they function differently in day-to-day life. Here in this article, I think this is kind of uh, a pretty key moment in this article. You say, and I quote, awe, modesty, contrition, gratitude, hope, faith, forgiveness. All of these are reflexive, self-referential, subject-sensitive. Um, Does that make them distinct from virtues such as courage, justice, prudence, and the like? Those are typically more immediately outside sensitive. Can you distinguish for us, I guess, the the subject sensitive or reflexive versus outside sensitive virtues? And does it have anything to do with why we might see other types of virtues more among our leaders, but maybe not? Uh, those uh, subject-sensitive types. Well, yeah, absolutely. The the there might be a simple distinction between the outside one and the inside one, just in this that often the outside ones are actually just more visible to people. Um, yeah. Someone being prudent, as George H. W. Bush arguably was. Uh, someone being brave, maybe you know a, a figure like John McCain would be brave. Um, those those sorts of claims, those virtues are um, are visible. You can point to things that happen. Uh, the worry a lot of people had about a lot of say um, Bill Clinton's uh, performances were that he seemed to be aping contrition or uh, aping ambivalence or something like I that. I feel your pain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whether or not that's true, right? I don't know, right. but I'm just, I'm just saying. But um, one of the interesting moments is you know with with Rosalind Carter's passing just now. Um, Jimmy Carter looks better year after year uh, in terms of the way he inhabited a certain presence as president, although I think he actually had some real limitations, which people have forgotten. Um, he was kind of a control freak and stuff like that. But um, a lot of the a lot of the virtues that people uh, should have contrition and things like that are um, virtues that would decay quickly if they were rendered public um, or too public. Uh, it you know again just to go back it's interesting to talk to people who are not public figures themselves but the people around public figures and the the people around public figures who really love the public figures they served or worked for or admire them like that's a really interesting sign because those people are the ones who um saw those figures in situations where they weren't uh putting it on and um there's a story someone tells uh, about George W. Bush coming back from um, one of the hospitals where the troops were injured uh, from his decision to go and invade Iraq. Um, and and that he had visited the troops that day and, and um, a mother was there with her son who was horribly disfigured. And the mother just blew up at Bush and, mm-hmm. you know, said, you're, you're the reason for all this. And on the helicopter ride back to the White House, he was there with his aide. I think it, was, it wasn't Nicole Wallace, but it was someone like that, one of the um, mm-hmm. one of the press people. And he said, you know, that that mama was really angry at me and I don't blame her one bit. Hmm. And and I I think about that as a parent myself, thinking about what it would be like to be in the presence of another parent, looking at their hugely damaged child Um and know that they are angry at me and that they are entirely right to be angry at me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's the first thing. It's like superficially the, the the difficulty of the of the of this of the reflexive virtues in that sense are that they're only really visible in ways 
that are not displayable in that. And sense. and and if I could say, I mean, you mentioned the people around the people, the people around the leaders. It's um, it's pretty clear that you know, and you probably already know where I'm going to go with this. But that Trump, uh, if Trump, heaven forbid, got another term, he would not have any carryover in his administration, in his last administration, to the next one, or, or very little. Uh, people will still be around. Well, They're either in, in prison. They, or they hate him or, you know, something. Uh, it, it's it's very clear. So I like that, that with these uh, inside um, uh, sensitive, you could kind of tell a little bit because they're, they're still seen in habits that they have, but they're more maybe um, uh, they more come out, I guess, in, in moments where they're disarmed and, and, uh, and do whatever they want outside the spotlight. Yeah. And then none of these people are perfect. And maybe it's just that these reflexive virtues are there for anybody who is recognizably human. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that would leave ambivalent the question of whether Trump is recognizably human. <laughs> we'll oh. leave that alone. Yeah. But for the I mean, other people, whatever their political policies are, and they could have been terrible in all sorts of ways, um, that experience of some awareness of the scope of the challenges facing them you know, the, the thing that Carter had on his desk, he had a little thing that said, oh, Lord, thy sea is so vast and my boat is so small. Yeah, that I think is is a is an Iborian sentiment. In, well, in that and I would I would even add, I mean, just think, I mean, not to drag it back to Trump, but just think about the reports. Like if we want to talk about wounded soldiers, I mean, the report about him and his response to their being a guy. Uh, I think it was a guy that was singing or he was at, at the thing. And just even Trump's response was afterwards, you know, to basically say like, why do we have this guy here? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I yeah. just think of like, I just also read Obama's memoir a little while back and, you know, it, he had a very, some similar experiences to Bush in going to the, he spent time going to the hospital and visiting, had similar experiences where, where you know, that kind of like, Hey, like I'm responsible for this. You know I mean? My decisions led here. Yeah. Yeah. Augustine's favorite, biblical passage for thinking about politics is um, this very interesting line in the Psalms of, from my necessities, deliver me, O Lord. And it appears in multiple places in Augustine's stuff. Um, and it appears famously in the, the judge who is, who is, finds himself required to torture in order to find the truth. And it's a complicated story, but in the city of God. Um, and I think about that line a lot when I look at that picture of Obama in the Situation Room on the night that they're um, killing uh, bin Laden, uh, you know, everyone else is looking at the screen and everyone else's body language is entirely kind of fixated on the screen. And Obama is there on the side and his arms are crossed and it's, it's like he's folded up in himself and he's looking at the screen, but it's there's something there that just utterly is burdening him. Hmm. And the difference between him and everyone else is that everyone else is watching his decisions play out. Um, and he's the one who made the decisions. And that's, I think, yeah. you know, a terrifying thing. I, I was which, never a supporter of George W. Bush, mm -hmm. but on September 12th, 2001, everyone else in the world woke up wondering what the United States of America was going to do. And George W. Bush woke up wondering, what am I going to do? I, I still remember when Obama was elected and I remember the look on his face when he was elected and it didn't look happy. <laughs> it looked almost like he was going to get sick, like this huge burden just was placed on. 
I also remember the the differences and there's, uh, you know, this video is going has been going around for some time uh, comparing Obama talking about killing Osama bin Laden and Trump killing al-Baghdadi. Uh, yeah. Hilarious in a way. Yeah. How, how flippant Trump is. But sad. But, but sad. Incredibly Terribly sad. sad. Yeah. Um I, I had one question. It's sad about his soul. That's that's yeah. the thing. This goes all the way back to Plato's Republic. Mm. Um, the beginning of Plato's Republic, and I don't mean to go off on a big tangent here, but the beginning of Plato's Republic, the first book, one of the main figures is this guy, Trasimachus, who is clearly ill-formed as a person. Whatever, mm. you know, you ask that question of him, like you ask in country Western songs, you know, who hurt you? Um, well, someone hurt Trasimachus at some point, and he has damaged himself in a certain way. And the problem that Plato's book starts is the problem of the person who is not really a reasonable a reasonable person how are they part of our world mm -hmm. and in a way with trump it feels like we've we've come to that in a very institutionally real way you know it's like the problem of the mad king in the middle ages or something like that this interestingly begs the question because i love your um your bifurcation your uh dual dualistic approach of you know we have these outside sensitive and inside reflexive sensitive any half-witted PR team can teach the outside sensitive. Where do we get the inside sensitive? Is that maybe not exclusive to the church, but is that the major hub, the major resource where we get that side of our character, th those virtues of contrition and so on? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I would, I would say that any PR campaign can produce a good simulacra of the outside virtues, whether or not they right. are actually there is, is nothing. But but um yeah, I actually think the question of how you can how you can reliably set up institutional structures, ecclesial or otherwise, that downstream of them produce the effect in our souls of cultivating these capacities we have, that's a really tricky one and a really tricky question. And I think um if you think about children, you know, a lot of it has to do with example, having them see people make mistakes and own up to the mistakes yeah. and be visibly regretful and own up to the that and also to help them when they get to those situations to explain to them as you know clearly many parents don't you know never apologize well that's a mistake um and you know but also don't apologize as a weapon of evasion or anything like that either but the moral the moral training of young people um into who we want them to be is a requirement that requires not just intentional acts on our part, but a lot of like, they can only become, I don't know, normally I would say two to 5% better than the context in which they grow up. Yeah. And often they can grow, they can become 10 to 20% worse than the context in which they grow up. And then there's like the magic of grace. There are some people who are just amazing and we've all seen this in our own lives and people we know but also when you read it in books and stuff who are unbelievably good or occasionally some people who really are unbelievably horrible. Um, but the problem is that it's so, unless you have a, a, a long list of people, not just your parents, but you know, like we are a species who are so other regarding in the way that we learn um, and so laterally aware of what other people are doing around us that if you don't have those good resources um it doesn't feel like those internal capacities those reflexive virtues get much in the way of development yeah and by the time we you know if you're talking to someone in their teenager college age years 
you know, we can we can direct books at them or stories and stuff like that. But it's a lot. A lot has already happened by yeah. that point. That's true. Well, my kind of I, I mean, I had been many questions. But I guess my final question for you would be um, just in looking at your article, I guess I was having a hard time distinguishing uh, between Niebuhr's use of faith and Niebuhr's use of hope. Um, we recently read a, we recently read um, Melvin Rogers uh, book, The Dark and Light of Faith. And he says in it, uh, faith is a stance toward a vision of life that one projects into a world at variance with that vision and for which one is willing to struggle in service of that often against the odds. And it seems like yours, your, your use of hope actually aligns with his use of hope, but it, he almost paints a picture in which faith and hope have, they're kind of in conflict. They're, they're very different, right? Hope would stand with the probabilities that are informed by the facts of like in, in this case, by the goodness of the people. Um, but there's a sense in which one of the things I really like about Niebuhr is that there's a certain madness to faith. There's a certain, um, it kind of stands in opposition to the odds. And I feel like, and, and I could be misreading you, but it feels like you kind of steer people more towards hope than faith in that regard. Yeah, that, that might be really um, insightful about where I was then. Um, I would say that uh, Rogers and I, and I, I know Melvin, in fact, I should see him tomorrow. He's coming here to do a thing on the on the book. Um, oh, awesome. We might differ in this. Melvin is much more of a Deweyan. Uh, and, and Dewey was one of Niebuhr's big opponents, uh, at least on Niebuhr's side. I don't I mean Dewey occasionally noticed Niebuhr, but I'm not sure he cared much. Yeah. Um, but... I think Dewey smears together faith and hope in a way to make them both um, future oriented uh, because Dewey is more metaphysically uncertain about the structure of the cosmos absent our will. And I think that that makes Dewey um, more resolutely, um, not so much works righteousness as much as we have to build the world that we want to uh, we want to warrant our confidence that the the world can be built in a way. There's a kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps vision uh, that leans into the future there. And that's why I think faith and hope get a little mashed together. I think Niebuhr um, and the faith, hope, and love distinction, which is the kind of Christian virtue distinction in that way, insofar as they are virtues. And again, I have a question about what it means to call them virtues. Um I think faith does direct you in some ways, uh, maybe towards the past uh, in the following sense, that you have to have faith in something. There's a deposit of faith. There is a beginning of a story that you are a part of that is going on. Um, and I feel like that that temporal dimension of faith as pointing to some history in the past and a momentum from that history is not something that the kind of Deweyan picture of faith and hope mashing them together has. I think hope has an apprehension of energies that are not necessarily readily and unequivocally discernible in the world, but that nonetheless um, tell you that the world as it is, is not the way the world should be. Mm -hmm. um, and that you hope for the world's future configuration in a way that's different than this. That's also gonna be differentiated from optimism. But it has, in parallel with optimism, a certain kind of wager on um, not a future end, but a futurity that is uh, open to this possible change in that way. 
That's interesting because it's um, I think it's in keeping with the writer of Hebrews when uh, talking about faith as uh, never talking about our faith without talking also about the faithfulness of God and where we've been moving into where we're going. Um, and yeah, I think Niebuhr's um, rubbed off on me with the uh, the optimism versus hope language. I, I think that's a that's a fair distinction. I, I think I, I guess it's just the thing I, point I was making is just simply like because he uses um, the difference in different African-American activists in like the 1800s and how really if you if you did it based on hope during their time really there isn't any there wasn't really any re, in in i think in his estimation there wasn't really resources uh, for hope in the sense that pessimism made the most sense or or isolation yeah. made the most sense whereas faith was kind of like what what they did to achieve uh civil rights for instance was really kind of it, it was but you are right I, you are very right because actually he connects it back to them believing in the promises of america and seeing how those could be also f- fulfilled in a different way. So, uh, yeah. All right. So my last question this is a special um, Advent question. Uh, These are always good. No, well, we'll see. There's, if you've noticed, there's jingle bells playing in the background right now behind behind our talking. And maybe a ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas. Um, all right, so here it is. Of all the people at the Nativity, doing a little Nativity cosplay here. Of all the people at the Nativity, who would Niebuhr be and why? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> ridiculous question. Answer it, don't answer it. It's fine. I'm going to force Zach to answer it, though. But yeah, that's that's think? really that's really interesting. Um, for me, the the one I would want to the one I would want to be is a little little drummer boy. But of course, that's a later song. I no, think the question for Niebuhr is: Would he be one of the Magi, or would he be one of the shepherds? Um, and I suspect he would have been a shepherd. What, what do you think? I would say I would say uh, shepherds also. Uh, that would be my first inclination. Uh, I think that um, you know we were told on a previous episode that um, anything too high church kind of freaked out Niebuhr, and I think that the I imagine the Magi would have been a little gaudy, you know, um, <laughs> might have freaked him out a little bit. But the Magi used uh, a natural theology oh, to find <laughs> to find baby Jesus. Am I wrong? <laughs> I, think, I think the real question is who would be Ricky Bobby from television? <laughs> yeah. I think that's uh, that's the really good one there. Uh, uh, actually, the, the the bank shot would be to say Niebuhr would be the innkeeper. Who was oh like, my well, gosh! Any room in the end, but I got this other place over here you could use. I had uh, I had written down that Bart probably would have said Niebuhr would be the innkeeper that refused Jesus. Oh. <laughs> I know that's funny, but but of course, Niebuhr, uh, but the the innkeeper then did give them the the stable. So that's true. Gave him yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that might be the most fitting uh, character for Niebuhr. Now that I might actually agree with that. Yeah. What we can know about Bart would be that Bart would be off sleeping with Lotto somewhere. Oh. <laughs> so. Whenever a Bartian comes at you with anything, just say. Was that him or was that his lover who he never recognized? Oh, man. Sure. 
I, I might cut this part. Print? I might right. cut this part, but we I did ask Harawas about because he keep he loves these guys that are embroiled in some scandals. All right, yeah. some sexual stuff. Yoder, who's the other guy? Uh, um, the guy that did the arch, and then Yoder. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and anyway. Uh, well, there's a danger in there's a danger in charismatic authority, and yep. the problem with someone like Yoder all along was it was not clear how that system was going to handle charismatic the challenges of charismatic authority. I just realized we're still playing sleigh bells over this. Kind of awkward. Dr. Charles Matthews, thank you so much for being on with us. It was a great pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. We'll have to do it again. Um, All right. Well, that about does it for this episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our guest, Dr. Charles Matthews, Chuck. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Like and subscribe. Write us a good review if you're enjoying it. And follow us on Twitter, at Love Thy Neighbor, for news and updates. And drop us a couple bucks on our tip link while you're there. Happy Advent, everybody, and stay safe out there.